It's Monday, April the 26th, 2021. More than 1 billion vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loder, the health policy editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccine story as it happens. Today, we'll look at what we've learned about COVID-19 after more than a year of studying and living with it. Natasha, hello. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. I have been watching this week uh, the situation in India, which is incredibly alarming. And there are cases rising exponentially of COVID-19. I'm sure many of us have seen the quite devastating pictures coming out of that country at the moment. They're obviously vaccinating as quickly as they can and in fact have banned the export of vaccines that are made in their own country so that they can meet domestic demand. The numbers are shocking. I mean, perhaps a surprise, perhaps not a surprise. I and mean, we'll return to India later in the episode and go through some of that then. Um, back on the show also this week is Slavea Chankova, healthcare correspondent at The Economist. Hello, Slavea. How are you? Hello, I'm good. Thank you. It's nice to be with you again. Slavea, we'll start with a really quick question. What, what, what do you think has been the most surprising thing we've learned about the coronavirus this past year? The most surprising thing is basically that it turned out to be a virus that was quite susceptible to vaccines. Um, I'm I'm really surprised that we have several vaccines that are working really well against it. And Natasha, what about you? Or is nothing surprising anymore? No, no. I think the thing that surprised me the most was the rise of post-truth attitudes in a health crisis. And I had expected global leaders all around the world to essentially rise above politics. Whereas in actual case, what we saw was some politicians take advantage of it um, for political reasons. I still find that remarkable when you look back. I mean, it wasn't everywhere by any means. It was just some specific leaders that did it with devastating consequences as well. More than 3 million people have died of COVID-19 since the novel coronavirus emerged in December 2019. Billions of others have had their lives upended as governments have locked down their populations and closed economies. But vaccines were developed in record time and now 167 countries are inoculating their citizens. Some countries such as Israel and America can see light at the end of the tunnel. But of course, this pandemic is far from over. In places such as India and Brazil, growing outbreaks are wreaking havoc. At this point, it's important to step back. What can governments and scientists learn from how the world responded to COVID-19? How can they be better prepared for future pandemics? So I'm Devi Sridhar. I'm a professor at the University of Edinburgh Medical School, and I run a research team here called the Global Health Governance Programme that looks at how we manage infectious disease outbreaks in various parts of the world. I asked Devi Sridhar what she's learned over the past year. Well, it started out, I think, last January, so January 2020, with 
kind of this anxiety over this cluster of cases in Wuhan. At the time, it was just, you know, 30, 40 cases, a couple dozen. And was there human-to-human transmission? And to see that spiral into what it has become over the past year and a bit is just an astonishing um, to see what could have, in a sense, in that moment, been like a SARS or MERS event, you know, handled, or even like an event like plague in Madagascar, yellow fever kind of contained become something that every country would struggle with in its own way, albeit to different degrees. Um, So I think right now we just have to keep being constructive, keep looking forward and keep learning the lessons so we get better at managing these types of events. What's been the most surprising thing about the past year for you, um, whether a good or a bad thing? Well, I think they're both good and bad. I think on the good side to see how many people have come together for their communities um, to embrace those social values that bring us together. So protecting those who have health conditions, those who are elderly, those who are more vulnerable. So the compliance levels in what we call lockdown have been astonishingly high. And that has not been because of the police. It has been because people want to do the right thing for their communities. And I think, you know, now a year in to still see people, you know, adhering to quite severe restrictions on their lives, both economic and social restrictions, um, I think it's just remarkable and a real testament to what makes us human and what brings us together. I think on the more depressing side, it was astonishing to see how badly richer countries have done, European countries, Britain, the States, even Canada. Um, our worry was always about the poorest countries. Even in January, you know, Dr. Tedros, the head of WHO, was thinking about African countries, those who didn't have health systems that could withstand even a slight increase in patient load. Um, but to see how European and Britain and, you know, Western countries have suffered, I think, is no one could have seen that coming. We always thought they were the best prepared countries. Um, People like you and many other scientists have for a long time predicted that um, the the pandemics are uh, are potentially going to happen, new viruses will emerge. And, um, you know, there have been lots of warnings from scientists to say that we need to really be prepared for new viral threats. Um, in, in your wildest imagination, did you think that a pandemic would end up affecting the world in the way that it has done in the last year? Well, I think it was always kind of the worst case scenario, kind of the nightmare scenario that was in the back of our minds. I mean, it was clear because we kept seeing more and more frequent spillover events. That's events from viruses, from you know animals to humans, if this would occur. And all it would take in this you know, you could say frequency of occurrences for one to have respiratory mechanisms to spread quite easily. And SARS-CoV-2 is a really tricky virus because it spreads also through asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic individuals, so people feeling fine. And the second thing is the hospitalization rate, which we already saw out of Wuhan when they constructed a hospital in a week, which is, you know, the number of people who need some kind of care, whether it's, you know, just, you know, oxygen and fluids all the way to ICU care and ventilation for many, many weeks um, is astonishing. And that will force countries into lockdowns because their health services collapse, as we are seeing now happening in Brazil and in India. So yeah, it's a it's a tricky one, but I think we need to kind of learn from this going forward of how we deal generally and not get obsessed as SARS or flu, but say how do we deal with acute respiratory pathogens? If we have another one emerge, what can we learn and do better? And the real lessons I think are actually on the scientific side as well as the public health side. What does the next year look like? Do we start to get back towards the normal 2019 lifestyle that we're, that we've all missed? I think 2019 is is gone. I miss it. I miss my old life. But I think we need to look forward. So there's best case to worst case. So I think best case, we can be vaccinate 
everybody here by the summer, we start on children with Pfizer, which looks really great. The mRNA vaccines look excellent in children in August, September. And by next autumn, we are flying. You know, we deal with this like measles. We maybe have flare-ups, but using wastewater testing and PCR testing, we can keep a check on it. And we're back to mixing normal life, parties, conferences, traveling around the country, ideal. And if these vaccines even stop variants, international vaccine passports, life goes on. So that's a best case scenario. I think worst case scenario is we end up in a world where because of the uncontrolled transmission in parts of the world, which we are now having, you end up with variants. And these variants, the ones that get chosen for and selected for are those that have immune escape, meaning they're able to evade the antibodies we have um, that come from vaccination or natural infection. And so in a way, it's almost a new virus that emerges. This is worst case before people freak out. And I think that's what gives me a slight bit of unease because I would hate to be in another lockdown next winter and have hospitals again full of people ill. That would just be worst case, which is why we just need to be a bit cautious now and plan for all scenarios, best case to worst case. But I think right now everyone thinks the best case is the only scenario and it's definitely not. Slavea, in the course of the past 12 months, there have been many surprises, unexpected things, um, good things, bad things. I just wonder if you could take us through some of the things that have really got your interest. I mean, you mentioned the speed of vaccines, um, and I think we're all surprised about how quickly the vaccines came along. But what else has sort of made you sort of sit up and listen? I think uh, as, as we were learning about the virus and what it is, how it spreads, I was quite surprised by the waves we've seen in country after country particularly how things came to a halt all over Europe in summer for quite some time. So it did seem that there was some seasonality pattern. Uh, Of course, cases were low when countries came out of lockdown, but still. I was also surprised by uh, what happened in Japan, which has the oldest population. So I was thinking, you know, they would have lots of people dying, but they haven't had that. And, you know, they also messed up the Diamond Princess uh, cruise ship quarantine at the very beginning of the pandemic. From that incident, uh, the Japanese gave us some of the most useful data in the early days of the pandemic uh, on what contributes most to transmission. Natasha, what about you? Uh, what's been the one or two things that really made you sort of sit up in the last year? The variants, basically. And stop me if I've told this story before. But um, I was interviewing Salim Abdul Karim, the epidemiologist, a month or so ago. And he was explaining something interesting to me about how they were tracking the virus monthly. And he would have these monthly meetings with one of his colleagues who would come up and they would look at the mutations um, that had arisen in this virus, this new virus. Towards the end of the year, he was wondering whether he needed to be doing this uh, meeting every month. Then one month, his colleague came into the room and Dr. Karim remembers that the colleague looked grey and really shocked. And then they sat down and, of course, this was the South Africa variant and mutations everywhere in key places. And that was, for them, certainly the first sign that this virus had the capacity to do something truly worrying. In the laboratory, the new variant, the 501YV2 variant, can have complete escape. That means a person who was infected in the first wave their antibodies do not even recognize the virus at all. So it's not even that they have diminished uh, neutralization. They have no neutralization in about half of the people. So you can see we have, a, we have an issue with our variant in that it can escape natural immunity. 
And I think after the South Africa variant took off, I think that was the point at which I realised that something very different could happen from what I had been hoping. Thank you both very much indeed. To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, take out the subscription. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash thejabpod. A story that I've been following in the past week or so is about whether or not pharmaceutical companies should waive their intellectual property rights for vaccines and medical products related to COVID-19. In a series of articles in The Economist, we look at arguments for and against. To read all of those, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash thejabpod to find the best subscription offer. It's in the notes for this episode. India is going through a torrid time. Last week, more than 315,000 people tested positive for COVID-19 on just a single day. That's the highest daily figure in any country at any point during the pandemic. By contrast, Indian deaths from the first wave of the pandemic, which peaked in September 2020, were surprisingly low. Even as recently as February, the country was recording around 10,000 infections a day. Why have COVID-19 outbreaks varied so much around the world? Someone who's been pondering that is Hal Hodson, The Economist technology correspondent. And Natasha, you've been speaking to Hal. Yeah, Hal's been trying to find out why the disease appears to spread and cause hospitalisations and deaths in different ways in different places at different times. And I've been having a really interesting chat with him about what he's found out. I've ended up homing in on questions around how the immune system is dealing with COVID. It's probably the biggest unknown, the biggest thing that people cannot yet quite explain. Um, And the, the kind of the thing to bear in mind here is that media coverage, quite rightly, is very, very interested in the virus itself. And you were very, very interested in variants. And we're very interested in the origins of the virus. You know, where did it come from? Did it come from bats via pangolins? Was it in China? Was it in Southeast Asia? But there's a whole other side to how ill people do or do not get. And that is the the way that their immune system is primed to respond to the virus for a whole constellation of factors that is unfortunately just as complex as the virus's origins itself. Well, tell us a little bit more then about, you know, immunity and how that's going to have an impact on, you know, how sick you get. There's a couple of different things. One side of the immunological equation is intrinsic and genetic. So everybody in their cells has a mechanism which displays different bits of the pathogens that come in from the outside world. When when a pathogen enters your body, various bits of your immune system sort of attack it and break it down and uh, they show it to the immune system. It says, look, here is a thing that I have found in this cell that I do not recognise. Prepare, prepare the body to deal with it. And your capability to show different bits of pathogens that have come into your body, the the actual mechanism by which you do that, uh, varies across populations and it varies genetically. You are born with a certain number of, they're called alleles, ways to do this. And if you don't have a way to do it that corresponds with a bit, the bit of the virus that is in SARS-CoV-2, your immune system will not function as well. So that's one of the intrinsic genetic factors that is at play here. 
So, so that tells us then that genetics can affect how the immune system is able to respond. What about the environment? Does experience with prior viruses prime the immune system in a different way? Yes, it does. It abs- we, we know that it does. And the evidence is building quite strongly to suggest that uh, exposure to prior coronaviruses has a protective impact. There's two different ways that this could have gone down. One of them is that 30% of all common colds are caused by coronaviruses, right? These are the endemic coronaviruses. They're floating around all the time. We're constantly getting them, getting a tiny bit sick. And we know that these are circulating in slightly different distributions in different parts of the world. So call them coronavirus ABCD. They have much longer, more complicated names than that. But in one part of the world, you might have a mixture of coronavirus circulation that is mostly D. In another part, it might be more A. And the other factor that matters is how often people are getting coronaviruses. All of these things can go into kind of priming or setting the state of your immune system so that when it encounters SARS-CoV-2, this newer virus, this kind of more immunologically surprising virus, you may or may not be lucky enough to have the kind of imprint from those other coronaviruses that will help you deal with SARS-CoV-2. And how much can this knowledge help us explain situations like we have in India at the moment where you know the, the country seemed to have been doing really well in keeping COVID-19 under control and now we're seeing cases of this new variant just take off We cannot say for certain what's going on in India at all, but there are a couple of things that we can hypothesise. And if I think doing so calmly without saying that we know for sure is perfectly fine. Uh, What's plausible is that as well as the things that India obviously benefits from, like having a large proportion of its population be young, there may have also been protective immunological factors at play whereby a a big portion of the population had some pre-existing immunity to the incoming virus when it first came through in its original form. And if you scale up that immunity across the whole population, that could have contributed to tamping down the spread. Now that there's a variant, that variant may have less cross-reactive immunity with the existing immunological state of sort of the average person in India. And it is it is possible that that is helping the virus to spread much faster now. Um, not just in the sense that the new variants are more transmissible in general. That's something we often hear about, new variants being more transmissible, but specifically more transmissible within the immunological context that we have in India. Um, that is possible I'm afraid, as, as ever, the answer is that we don't know yet. Natasha, you mentioned India at the end of that interview. What is going on in India? What do we know? I mean, Hal has said quite clearly that we don't know, but, but I'm going to ask you to hypothesise a bit further. Well, yes, the hypothesis is clearly that the new variant has been able to take off in a way that wasn't possible in the past, perhaps due to some kind of pre-existing immunity. The other intriguing thing we knew in the past was that the death rate was lower. And so for every infection you were seeing in India, you were seeing fewer deaths. I think it was there was talk at the time of it being about half as lethal in India as it was in America. 
any case, rolling forward now, you know, we have this outbreak, we've got this new mutant, we're still wondering if that's what's driving what's going on, don't have enough information about that. But what we also don't know is uh, whether the fatality rate is going to remain low as well. And so, of course, you know, it's a new variant and so all bets could be off. And so the fatality rate might be higher this time. But even if it does remain low, we're getting to the state where there are so many infections that what we're talking about is large numbers of deaths either way. And kind of where we are now is we have 300,000 cases a day, more, more than that. And of course, there's a lag, obviously, in um, what the death rate is. At the moment, we're seeing more than 2,000 deaths a day. That number is going to keep rising. So, you know, in absolute terms, India is facing a devastating crisis in the coming weeks and months. Slavea, let's talk about what we've learned about how the virus is transmitted in the past 12 months. Um, because this, of course, feeds into the modelling around what you do around lockdowns or how you, well, what parts of your economy you can open or not open. And, and the transmission of SARS-CoV-2 has been a, basically a live question for, for some time now. Tell us what we know. Well, we know that it's uh, mostly or almost entirely through the air, not surfaces, which were, you know, a big focus initially. People were disinfecting packages and, and so on. Um, so we probably don't need all this hygiene theater that's going on right now. Um, I was on public transport this morning in London and they were talking how they use hospital grade products to clean uh, the subway cars. But, you know, Instead, they probably should have talked more about, please make sure your masks fits very well over your face. We've also learned that people who have uh, higher viral loads are more contagious, but nobody knows who develops these high viral loads. Oftentimes, it's people who have no symptoms at all. We don't know why that happens. So because we can't identify those people, what we need to do is really uh, prevent super spreading events. N Natasha, um, we just heard there that some people get sick and some people don't, even if they've got huge viral loads. Do we know why? There's lots of factors that drive why people get sick. And we've, we've known that since the early days, you know, age and um, comorbidities and stuff like that. One of the things we have learned in the last year that hasn't been given quite so much attention is that being obese and overweight is an actual independent risk factor for getting severe COVID-19. And if you look at those who've been hospitalised, more than 30% of them are overweight and more than 30% are obese. And, you know, if you're obese, you have a 73% chance of needing mechanical ventilation and your mortality is 48% higher. Now, that's really significant and important to know and so it should certainly encourage us all to look after ourselves. And it's that was the thing that came out of the also came out of the the risk estimator that our, the Economist data team produced a few weeks ago, which is that the the people who were obese had such a high risk of, of complications when it came to COVID nineteen infections. Slaber, what about the question of reinfection? Um, we heard very early on about some cases of people being reinfected. Uh, we weren't sure if they were real or not. But what's what's the sort of twelve months later? What what do we know about that? We know that, yes, reinfections can happen, but they're very rare. A natural infection, COVID-19, is 90% protective, and the antibodies last for at least six months, uh, probably longer. So uh, you do have uh, considerable protection, but the variants may change that. We learned from 
studies uh, in South Africa, some of the vaccine studies, in fact, that the variant there is quite evasive of immunity, whether it's created by the vaccine or prior infection. And we've also uh, seen this with some other variants. And there is even a specific mutation that scientists have nabbed called E484K, which has been nicknamed appropriately EEK. Um, EEK as in EEK. Yes, uh, E-E-K, uh, which uh, seems to be uh, particularly troublesome uh, when it comes to evading natural immunity. Do you know what's interesting hearing you talking about all those numbers and the, the variations and things is that almost exactly a year ago, I wrote a piece for our science and tech section about immunity and what immunity is and how we don't know anything about how long immunity lasts or what kind of immunity we have. And it's really, really gratifying to just have some numbers a year later. And actually, when you say 90% protective, you know, a natural infection is 90% protective. We didn't know that last year. Uh, and it's quite Amazing to know that now. And there's plenty still to learn, of course. Um, what, what's the difference in immunity between a natural infection and a vaccine? Do, do we know? Yeah, there are some studies coming out primarily from here in the UK where they uh, track thousands of people who've been vaccinated and do blood tests to look at the antibodies and kind of this elaborate uh, immune response, both antibody and T-cell response to vaccines. So what what's looking now um, is that the vaccines provide a more diverse set of immune response than natural infection. And the way scientists know that, they, they measure by, the, by the, ty the types of antibodies and T-cells, and there is a bigger variety of that uh, from a vaccine. What this means is not entirely clear, but it is likely that vaccines would offer probably stronger, more durable protection, uh, or possibly could be more protective against variants than natural infection is. While India has been going through hell, as our daily podcast The Intelligence reported last week, Israel is showing what a difference vaccines can make. More than 60% of its population has now been fully vaccinated. Many people around the world see that country as a glimpse into the future. Life is almost back to pre-pandemic normal here in Israel now. With roughly 90% of the adult population either having been vaccinated or having recovered from COVID. That's Anshul Pfeffer, our Israel correspondent, who's based in Jerusalem. We last heard from him when he got jabbed in February. The government has removed most of the major restrictions on social gatherings, uh, businesses are open, sports and music venues are still only open at about 30% of capacity, but they're also getting back to normal. Michelle. The main question marks now are about when and if they'll start vaccinating children. And there's an ongoing dialogue between the Israeli health authorities and Pfizer, which is the supplier of the vaccines being used by Israelis. Despite that, the schools have returned to almost full and normal service. And the other main issue is when will international travel return to its previous rates? Because the main 
Worry now is a new variant of COVID-19, which is more vaccine resistant arriving in Israel. Do you know, or do scientists in the country know whether Israel's reached herd immunity yet? Well, there's still a bit of an argument about that amongst the number crunchers and the epidemiologists about that. Some are saying that, yes, Israel has reached herd immunity. Some are saying this is not yet herd immunity, but it's as good as it gets. I haven't seen yet a scientific consensus on that. And to be honest, it doesn't. people aren't really that bothered because people have resumed their normal lives as much as possible. The questions, these questions of herd immunity, which loomed large in our lives back in 2020, matter less when you're just almost living your life as you did before. Anshul, one of the ideas that Israel adopted early was the idea of vaccine passports. Um, how have they gone down? Israelis are used to being asked to produce ID anyway, so this wasn't something that met with any major opposition. I think, in fact, it was an incentive because at the point of the vaccine rollout where they started to vaccinate younger Israelis in their 20s and 30s, there was less of a less of a rush to go and get jabbed. And that's when the government rolled out what they called the Green Pass, which acted more as an incentive. People went and got vaccinated. Israelis vaccinate twice in a three-week interval. And after the second vaccination, you downloaded your green pass to your smartphone and you felt that, okay, now I can go back to life. And that was more or less the same time when they began reopening restaurants and bars. So it worked in that sense. But actually, you very rarely get asked in Israel to show your green pass because the assumption now is that almost everyone is vaccinated anyway. So the green pass worked in motivating people to get vaccinated. It's not really being used as such. Slavea, can I ask you just to reflect on what Anshul said? Um, is Israel a model for the rest of the world? It's certainly a model for the efficiency with which they did it. But to be honest, they also had an advantage that many countries do not have. They had ample vaccine supplies, which Pfizer gave them in exchange for detailed data on vaccine efficacy. They also have a kind of pretty well-organized healthcare system as well. So it's a model for the rest of the world insofar as you can get as much vaccine as you need and you have a, a well-functioning healthcare system. Slavia, what do you think we'll be focused on in the next 12 months? I mean, obviously vaccinations are important. But what else are we thinking about when it comes to dealing with the pandemic? I think a major issue and really chapter two of the pandemic would be uh, dealing with long covid what it is, finding out what the biological mechanism is, how do you treat it. It is quite a big issue. I mean, we are seeing data coming out of the UK that 1.5% of working age adults, people in their 30s and 40s, have symptoms for more than three months, which is very, very worrying. Natasha, what about you? What do you think the next 12 months is going to bring in terms of our attempts to understand the pandemic and its consequences? I'm going to be interested to see what's going to be happening to things like hospital departments that deal with organ damage and things like that. There's all sorts of elements of the healthcare system that are going to be stressed after this. In terms of what I see as significant happening over the next 12 months, variant vaccines, polyvalent vaccines, I think something are going to have to happen. Travel's going to be an ongoing issue. And the other big issue is how we treat mild COVID cases. And what we really, really, really need 
is an antiviral or some way of suppressing the virus when we detect it early on. So as soon as you get your diagnosis, you're able to take something that makes it less likely you're going to end up in hospital. One last thing, if we can predict with a higher degree of accuracy who is going to end up in hospital, we may be able to use antibody therapies more efficiently. Slavia, what is the landscape for drugs to treat COVID? Where should we be optimistic? I think we can be very optimistic. There are several promising treatments uh, that are in late stage trials. We actually already have one which came through the biggest trial here in the UK. It's an inhalable drug that uh, people with asthma use, which was shown to be beneficial if you take it early at home. And that's the kind of drug, as Natasha said, that will really make a difference in keeping people out of hospital. Because even if you have very high vaccination rates, you will still have some people who get infected. The variants may make vaccination less effective than it is at first. So you do need drugs. And I think we will have drugs that can stop people from going into hospital. Okay, thank you both very much. Now, before we go, I'd like to ask you both a few quick questions on which parts of pre-pandemic life you're now happy to take part in again. Slavea, would you get on an aeroplane? Um, only if I really have to. I'm not vaccinated yet. Uh, once I'm vaccinated, even with just one dose uh, a couple of weeks later, I know protection is already quite high. So between that and the mask and, you know, cases being low, I'll feel more comfortable. Uh, but for now, I think only if I, if I really have to travel. So you'd still wear a mask even after vaccination? I think I will for a while. I mean, if I'm vaccinated, I know that the vaccine is very effective, but not 100% effective. And then if the pandemic is still going, you know, you're going through airports where there are people from all over the world. You never know who else is vaccinated or not on the plane. So it's a very easy thing to protect yourself. Natasha, amongst your many superpowers, you actually have been vaccinated. So um, how about you? Would you hug a relative now? We're not supposed to, but if they needed a hug, I probably would. The CDC in America have suggested if you're vaccinated and your relative is vaccinated, you probably can give them a hug. Yes, they have. Does that sound sensible? uh, Well, remember, of course, that the recommendations will vary from country to country and that incidence is a really big factor in your risk. And so even if you have been vaccinated, if the level of the virus in your community remains high, then you're going to be much more at risk. You know, I'm a health correspondent, and so I'm obviously obliged to keep to the rules, right? But I will confess the one rule I have broken in the last 12 months is I have hugged someone, and it was because they needed it. Okay, how about meeting friends? Indoors or outdoors? Slavia? Well, we are meeting outdoors here in the UK, but the thing that has really made a difference here in the last couple of weeks is the rapid tests that we all have. You know, I just went to the local library and took a box of seven, and we're supposed to be doing them twice a week, which really gives me a peace of mind. You know, before I meet with friends, we would all just That's do right. the test. The NHS will just give you yes. some now. They, they just get, arrive in a nicely packaged yes, box or it just, made in China. <laughs> or <it> just, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, even though we are outside, if you spend a lot of time with someone face to face, you probably, you know, still feel a bit uncomfortable. So if you've, if you've done the tests, you feel a lot better about doing that. 
having information is such a, a superpower in this case, because a year ago, of course, we had lockdowns, we didn't meet indoors, all of those things, because we didn't know who had the virus and we had no way of testing. But now with rapid tests, even though they're not perfect, it's a good way of just having a little bit more information to allow you to make a better decision. Okay, in about a month, in a May in the UK, people will be allowed to meet indoors. They won't be allowed to go clubbing quite yet, but when do you two think you'd like to go clubbing again? Tomorrow, oh. Alok. Natasha, do you, you probably want to go clubbing soon, I'm guessing. Um, when would you go? I'm a when would total you go? old fogey and there's really nothing um, that would induce me to go clubbing ever. All right, some other indoor fun event that involves a lot of people. Well, like the theatre, for example, I would definitely go to if everybody else was wearing a mask. Slavea? masks in clubbing probably would be quite trendy, I guess. How about clubbing, how know, about clubbing outside? I mean, the summer is, oh, summer yeah. is coming. Festivals. Uh, festivals, but with probably, you know, limited capacity so people can space themselves uh, a little bit. Yeah, because remember, if you're clubbing, you know, you're dancing up and down, there's loud music, you're shouting, virus is getting expelled into a kind of hot... Oh, I just... No, yuck. Um, outside is a different matter. Um, all right, okay, f final one. Singing in a choir. Do either of you sing in choirs? When does that come back? It's an important thing for many people. And it's one of the biggest super spreading type events, surprisingly. I think when incidence goes right down, and I can't tell you when the incidence is going to be low enough for me to sing in a room. But just to say, if I do sing in a room, it would pretty much empty it immediately. So it's very <laughs> safe. It's what's called a non-pharmaceutical intervention. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, Natasha, Slavea, thank you both very much indeed. Good. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all from us. The show's producers are Duncan Barber and Hannah Mourinho. The sound designer is Nico Rofast and the editor is John Shields. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more on the jab next week when we'll find out how some countries are trading vaccines for political and diplomatic gains.